Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. In our Survivor Series episode today, we speak with Anita Guerra, a protective mother from Great Britain. In 2014, Anita's ex-husband invoked the Hague Convention and forced her to return to the U.S. with her children, creating a complex case spanning many months in two countries. Over the next year, Anita's case brought her back to Arizona and resulted in a divorce and custody decision that would dramatically change the course of Anita and her children's lives. She has not been able to see her children, now 11 and 13 years old, since August of 2015. Anita doesn't know when she will be able to see her children again, as she has neither the means nor the resources to enforce her parenting time with her children, and she fears that doing so would put them at greater risk of harm by their father. Anita is here with us today to talk about her experience as a survivor of domestic violence and coercive control, share abuser tactics, and the signs of abuse that she experienced and witnessed, and upstander tips for how we can better support families in situations like hers. Welcome, Anita. Hi, Terry. You currently live in the UK, and your journey there has been very long and a, a very eventful one that I'm happy to be able to share with my listeners. So let's start with the beginning of your relationship with your ex-husband. Can you talk about the ways in which he exerted coercive control over you and what some of the abuser tactics he used in your relationship? Yes, of course, Terry. And can I just say thank you for giving me this opportunity to share my story? Um, I think the more people learn about abuse, the faster we can get to um, cutting it down or eradicating it, perhaps. Um, So in the beginning, my ex-husband and I, we moved to the United States when my children were very young, our children. Um, He is originally from New York, so he's American. Um, And we moved to Arizona with our young children. My daughter was about four months old. And my son was just two years old at that time. The control became obvious actually before we even reached the United States. But within a couple of weeks of getting to America, he made it very clear to me that I had no more choices. He explained to me very clearly that now that we were in America, he is a U.S. citizen. Our children were U.S. citizens. I was not. I'm British. And he said to me very explicitly, if you do anything against me, if you go against me, if you want to leave me, you can do anything you want. But remember, you will never see your children again. So he threatened you um, when you left Europe. Yes. And arrived in the U.S. Yes. And what were other ways in which those threats were manifest in your relationship and in terms of behaviors that impacted your relationships with your friends or family and how it impacted your children? Well, he was very, very controlling um, across all areas of life, really. Uh, Financially, um, I was a stay-at-home mother, but I still had a part-time job as a journalist. Every time, every month when my 
earnings would be paid into our joint bank account. He would remove all of that money and then let little bits trickle in so that I had some money to buy groceries, for example. If I wanted extra, I always had to ask. And he um, he was physically abusive. He never actually hit me, not with a fist, and he would be very proud, I'm sure, to say that he never hit me. But he pushed me. He would grab hold of me hard enough to leave bruises. He would push me to the floor. Um, he would raise his fist and threaten me, although he never punished me. Um, so there was definitely physical abuse, sexual abuse as well. And as far as friends and family are concerned, he would make it very clear when he was displeased with either being with someone or someone's behavior, what someone said, he would give me the look and anyone who's been in any abusive relationship will understand immediately what is meant by the look because we all experience it. And how did that impact your friends and family who saw? Did they see that as a sign of abuse? Nobody ever mentioned abuse to me. Um, and I think that's another problem with our society, Terry, is people don't talk about abuse. People do not always understand and recognize the signs of abuse and certainly the signs of coercive control. And I think it should be talked about more. It's always the the victim, which is usually the woman who has to bear the shame of the abuse and never the perpetrator. And that's something we need to change. But my friends certainly did recognize it. They soon learned that when he was away, which was quite often, he was a commercial, he is, I'm sorry, still a commercial pilot. So he was often out of state. When he was away, my children and I, we could become involved in community events socialize with friends. Um, I would go to school and volunteer and so on. When he was home for a few days, we generally did not socialize with others or not so much. And what was it that made you not want to socialize? Was there something explicit that he said or did to let you know that that wasn't something he approved of? Or was it through other signs? Yes, both actually, Terry. He would certainly be explicit and say to me, I don't like so-and-so, I don't think they respect me, they were not um, sociable and welcoming to me, I don't want to see them again and I don't want you to see them again. That would be quite explicit. Um, he would also make it clear in the way he behaved. If, um, for example, people visited us at home, he would not interact, he would not become involved in conversation he would um, basically walk around making himself a cup of tea or something to eat and not asking guests if they wanted anything, so showing that he was not welcoming to them. And that would include friends and family who came to stay with us. So in uh, sort of typical Evan Stark or sort of control uh, one-on-one yes. tactics, he engaged in isolation, in intimidation, and then the low-level, as Evan Stark says, pushing and shoving and low-level physical violence. Yes. And the sexual um, violence as yes. well. And what was the message that this sent to your children? How did they react to it? They were very afraid of him. Um, they knew not to act up in any way, not to misbehave in any way when their father was around. Uh, they knew that if he was at home, we would probably not go out. They couldn't have friends over. And um, very often he would come home 
sometimes quite late. He liked to lie in when he wasn't working, so he would stay in bed till till noon or later sometimes, till 1, one thirty. And when you've got young children and they wake up at 6, 6.30 in the morning and they want to be doing something and you have to stay home and be very quiet uh, because their father is asleep. Um, and if I took the children out and he woke up, he would complain that he had very little time at home. He came home to see his family and we went out without him. We weren't interested in spending time with him. Whereas if we stayed at home and made any noise at all, he would complain that he came home to see his family and all we could do is disturb his sleep when he desperately needed to sleep because he'd been earning money to support us. So basically, I hear you saying that whatever you did, there was going to be some complaint and you and your children had to censor your behavior and your words in order to satisfy him. Yes, absolutely correct. And at some point, you and your children went back to the UK in 2013. What happened then? What prompted your return? Well, my parents, um, who lived in London, visited us every Christmas for between four and six weeks. And we visited London every summer, again, for between four and six weeks. So my children and my parents had a very close bond, spent a lot of time together their entire lives. My brother was also in London. He and his wife um, had a new baby in 2013. Um, my parents had visited us in Christmas 2012 and both being quite elderly, well into their 80s, had become very ill. They'd actually both been taken into A&E on the same evening and my father was actually hospitalised twice. They were unable to fly home for a six or seven weeks as they were not fit to fly. So that was a very stressful and difficult time for all of us because we were really not sure what was going to happen to them and if they could ever return home. When they did return home, it became clear that where they were living was not really suitable for them at their advanced age. And so when we were going back in the summer, myself and my children, going back for our usual summer visit, um, my ex-husband agreed that we could prolong the visit in order to help my parents find somewhere more suitable to live. Unfortunately, our trip back to London in the summer of 2013 got delayed. So by the time we left, my children's summer vacation was almost over. They had approximately two weeks of summer vacation left and we were just setting off for London. My ex-husband therefore agreed that we could go to London, stay in England as long as was necessary he encouraged me to rent a home in England for myself and our children. He encouraged me to enroll the children in schools, in local schools in England. And he visited us here a few times to, so he could see for himself the home was suitable, the school was excellent, um, and we had a lot of contact with and support from friends and family in the area. How did you and your children adapt to being away from him? Oh, it was wonderful. <laughs> we all blossomed. Um, my daughter had been very, very timid and very clingy. She was um, just six years old at that point, and she'd always been very scared, very, very timid, as I said. She started at her new school and, again, was very concerned about being away from me, about being in a new, new school, a new environment. She settled in so quickly 
in the beginning, um, she did not want to stand up in front of the rest of her school and say or do anything. She didn't want any attention on her. By the end of the semester, um, she was standing up in front of everyone and telling telling little stories and happy to be the center of attention. She started going to drama classes. She just blossomed. And my son found it very difficult um, at times because his father withdrew all contact for a period of several months. He wouldn't even speak to the children on the phone. My son found that very difficult. Um, But again, he started to relax and he enjoyed the fact that he didn't need to be afraid. And then at some point... When you were there for about eight months or so, your husband, ex-husband asked for you and your children to return to the U.S. What happened? What prompted him to ask for that? That's correct, Terry. He had got a new job with a new airline. I think I mentioned he's a commercial pilot. So he'd got a job with a a better airline. Um, And when you start as a pilot with a new airline, you have to go and do several weeks worth of training, get your type ratings and so on. So he was away doing that training. Um, And when he'd completed his training and returned home to Arizona, he then got in touch with me, having had no contact with me for several months. Um, I'd had to resort to contacting my mother-in-law in in New York to say, is he okay? Is he still alive? What's happening? And she said, oh, he calls me every weekend. He's fine. So I knew that he was okay. Um, But when he got back to Arizona and his training was complete and his job was secure, he contacted me and said, right, I'm home. You all need to come back now. So would you say that because he had some security himself, that he was, quote unquote, empowered financially and in his status, that that prompted him to ask for your return? Well, that's an interesting way of looking at it, Terry. Um, His job certainly was more secure once he'd passed his training. Absolutely. Financially, um, he wasn't really in any... um, in any danger of being in financial trouble. So I, 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 I cannot think that that was an issue for him. Um, he had just had a few months without his family and he returned to Arizona. The house was empty. Nobody was there looking after it and cooking his meals and cleaning and so on. And um, I think it, he decided it suited his image to be in Arizona, a family man and have his wife and children there. So he told me to return immediately. And how did you respond? I told him that the children were very well settled in school. They were happy spending time with um, friends and family outside of school time. They were involved in lots of extracurricular events and their education. They were halfway through a semester. So I didn't think it would be in their best interest to return within a week or so. Um, I told him we needed to discuss it and decide what the best thing be for our children, what would be in their best interest. At that point, your son and your daughter were in school, both you said? Oh, yes. And so he expected both of them to just return to the U.S. without even being enrolled in school in the U.S., without any plans to set them up. Is that right? Yes. Yes. He actually, when I said to him, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, my, my concern is for their education. They're doing well at school. They're in the middle of a semester. They've obviously got plans for the rest of the semester at school. You know how schools plan things like in, in so many weeks we'll be doing such and such. They were very invested in all that, involved in doing projects with their schoolmates and colleagues. And um, I said to my ex-husband, we need to consider their education 
And he actually said to me, and I quote, because I thought this was so horrific, he said, I don't care about their education. I'm telling you to come back now. And what did you do after that? I tried to insist that we had to keep our children's best interests in mind. And although he wanted us to return immediately, we'd already been away for eight or nine months. And a few more weeks or months would surely make very little difference, but it could make a big difference to our children. And when he, at some point, he threatened you? That's correct. Um, After a few conversations like this, where I said to him explicitly, I'm not saying I won't come back. I'm just saying we need to consider what is best for our children at this time and give them a natural break in school year rather than just midweek. You know, today's Tuesday, let's go to school. Tomorrow's Wednesday, let's go to the airport. I said, that's not the best thing for them. So then he wrote to me and he said, I don't care what you do. He actually used an expletive, which I won't use on your podcast, Terry. Um, He actually said, I don't give a mm -mm, what you do. You can do what you want. I'm telling you, I'm coming back to take my American children back to America and you can do what you want. So at that point you went to the police, is that right? Correct. Because I took his threat seriously, having lived with him for many years, I had a feeling for the sort of things he's capable of. And I thought he would absolutely not hesitate to get on a plane, come over to the UK, pick up his children as he saw them, put them on the plane, take them back to America with no thought for anyone else or anything else. Um, So I went to the police because I thought, surely you can't do this. You can't just pick up children and grab them and take them somewhere else without permission from both parents. And the police confirmed that I was correct. You are not allowed to do this. Domestic law and international laws prohibit any parent from taking a child to another country across a border without permission from the other parent. So the police were confident that this would be against the law. And they encouraged me to set up... um, plans. They they helped me with what they called a trigger plan. They put out an all ports alert, which meant my ex-husband's name was on immigration computers. So if he entered the United Kingdom anywhere, his name would be flagged up and police would be alerted. And um, they would then tell me straight away. They had also spoken to the school and informed the school that they were not to allow my ex-husband to take the children. Um, but instead to keep everybody on site and call the police. If I got such an alert, I was to get in my car with the bag that I was to keep packed in the trunk of the car at all times, take the children, whether it was four o'clock in the morning to grab them from their beds or whether it was two o'clock in the afternoon to get straight to school and grab them from school. I was to take the kids and go to a safe space and stay there until the police could reassure me that the situation was under control and my children were not in danger of being removed by their father from the country they were living in. So then in in August of 2014, at that point, you also filed for divorce. What happened exactly in August? Because I understand he tried to enter the UK. What happened first? Yes, perhaps I should just backtrack a bit here, Terry. I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. Um, when I went to the police in... Um, Gosh, I think it was April 2014, um, to say that he was basically threatening to come and take his children back to America without my consent. 
The police also did something that's called a dash assessment, which they do with as a routine with everyone. Um, and at the end of it, they said to me that I had just reported a crime to them. Um, I was slightly confused and I said, I don't understand. And they said, well, the answers you've given to our questions indicate to us that you are a victim of marital rape, which is a criminal offence and has been since, I believe, 1991 in England and Wales and is also a criminal offence, a felony in the United States. Um, so they said what you've reported is basically rape. So that is an offence that we would like to investigate further. So when my... Um, ex-husband actually didn't come into the country to take the children at that point. Uh, the police just waited. He then invoked something, an international law, in effect, called the Hague Convention, which was set up originally in the 1980s and designed for exactly that purpose, to stop one parent from taking children to another country without the other parent's permission. Um, so he then claimed that I had abducted our children and taken them to London without his knowledge and that he didn't know where we were and he was demanding the return of his children. So he only entered the United Kingdom in August for the first hearing of that case. Oh, so he, he came voluntarily based uh, on, yes, based on his own filing of the Hague Convention. That's correct, yes. When he landed at Heathrow, he was, of course, arrested immediately by police at the airport who'd been alerted the minute he got on a plane in New York. They were waiting. They arrested him. Um, they took him to a police station where they questioned him for, uh, I believe, around 14 hours before they released him. Um, and uh, he was then put under quite strict bail conditions um, for example, he was not allowed to contact me directly. He was not allowed into the town that the children and I were living in. Um, and, uh, of course, we then had to go to court for this other case that was running the Hague Convention case. And at that time, you filed for divorce in the UK? Yeah, my legal advisors in the UK told me I should also file for divorce in the UK. So that's what I did. Um, I believe that was in August of 2014, yes. Unfortunately, that never went anywhere because in the end, we had to return to Arizona and um, my eventual divorce took place in Arizona. But before that happened, the police in the UK dropped your case in November of 2014. Why did they do that? Well, the children and I had to return to Arizona at the very beginning of November 2014 because although by that time we'd been in England for about 16 months and the children were certainly very well settled in what's also their home country. They have, they were both born in Germany. They have a German passport. They have British passports and citizenship and, of course, US citizenship. So they were very well settled, but the courts nevertheless said they should return to Arizona and the courts in Arizona should have jurisdiction and decide on custody issues for our children. So we returned to Arizona at the very beginning of November 2014, Halfway through 2014, the police in England did drop the rape, marital rape case because, as they said, there was no evidence. The perpetrator, my ex-husband, was not in the country. I was not in the country. There was very little for them to go on. So in a way, it was surprising that they even 
made all that effort to arrest him and put the alerts out for him? Well, it's not surprising. Women do not report abuse or sexual assault or rape lightly. Um, cases of false allegations are extremely rare, as I'm sure you know, Terry, and I'm sure that Evan talked about this when you talked about coercive control as well. Um, so the police were willing to investigate my claims. Um, they didn't brush it under the carpet and say, stop being a hysterical woman. They took it seriously. And they, um, I can't say they believe me because I don't know what was in their minds, but they were willing to listen to me and investigate. And after all, I had not gone to them accusing anyone of any crime against me. I had gone to them to say I was concerned that my, as he was then, husband would take our children out of the country without my permission. That was the only reason I went to the police. They then asked me a series of standard questions and said to me that I had also reported a crime. The reason I asked about their acting on the crimes is because usually I would suspect that they're going to take all the evidence and knowing that it happened in the U.S., my assumption was there wouldn't have been enough evidence for them to even move forward with it, which I guess is eventually what happened. Well, actually, it also happened in England. Ah. Um, My ex-husband had visited us four times between July 2013 when we left Arizona and um, the end of the year, so Christmas period. He had visited us three or four times during that period. Um, As I said, he'd seen the home that we were renting. He'd seen the school the children were attending. So to also say that he didn't know where we were was slightly ridiculous. Um, But he, he knew where we were. He'd visited and I had been subject to the same sort of abuse in England as I had been for many years in Arizona. And the police were primarily concerned with investigating that. There was also um, some concern for the well-being of the children and um, a body, a charity actually in this country that is set up to protect children, wanted to investigate further in the US. But at that point, um, I didn't feel that that was the right thing to do. So I didn't share my then husband's details with that charity for them to investigate and take it up with the police in the US. Um, And the police in England, because I had returned to the US, felt there was very little more that they could do that I could go to the police in Arizona and make a complaint there if I wished to. Okay, and then when you returned to Arizona on November 3rd, 2014, Mm -hmm. within several days, there was a whirlwind of activity. And so let's start with November 3rd, 2014. Right. What happened? Um, Well, I had left England with um, orders of protection from the court in London, from the High Court in London, and also various undertakings that my ex-husband had to make to the court, promising, for example, that he would help to support us financially, he would maintain our health insurance in the U.S., that he would allow me to have access to my cars, that I would have a vehicle. In We lived in Phoenix. I don't know if you or your listeners are aware, but you definitely need a car in Phoenix. There is very limited public transport. And with the climate as well, um, having a vehicle is, is really quite essential. Um, so there were various undertakings that he had to make. One of them, I believe, was also not to be at the airport when we arrived. 
So when we stepped off the plane and um, someone who I later learned is called a process server um, approached me and um, addressed me by name and said he had some papers for me, I was very scared and refused to accept whatever he was trying to give me. I didn't understand what was happening. I had been informed by my legal team in England that um, one of the conditions of my return was that my ex-husband was not allowed to begin any court proceedings in Arizona until I was in Arizona, because this would give me time to find a good attorney. I was also told that he couldn't be at the airport to meet us. So when this man approached me and called me by name and said, I have papers for you, you need to take them. I didn't. I didn't understand what might happen. I thought if I accept these papers, maybe I'm accepting some kind of legal, I don't know, that I'm accepting that I get to jail or I'm going to be deported or I don't know what's going to happen. So I can't accept anything without first talking to an attorney. So I refused. He then um, left and he returned within about 30 seconds with my ex-husband. Um, obviously, I was absolutely terrified of him, having been told that he would not be present. He um, also was very intimidating. They also brought with them a police officer with a large police dog, which was also quite intimidating for me with two young children. Um, but I refused to take the papers and finally was able to leave the airport. Um, I had arranged for someone to meet me at the airport and take me back to a safe place to stay. Um, the next morning, I went straight to the local branch of the family court because the domestic violence, um, the coalition in Arizona, the coalition to end domestic um, and sexual violence, had advised me that I needed to get an order of protection, what they called domesticated. And they explained to me that I needed to go to a family court, show them my order of protection from London and get an equivalent order that was valid in Arizona. So I didn't know any of this beforehand. So I went to the court. Um, I had help from their domestic violence advisor at the court to fill in the correct forms. I saw a commissioner at the court who immediately said, based on the um, um, on the policy, policy of um, committee, they, he would be happy to give me an order of protection, um, which included me and he included my children. And he said he was going to include our family home because that's what the children should return to. So he gave me this quite detailed order of protection and I felt quite relieved um, and then returned to wait for my friend to pick me up from the court, my friend who was looking after our children. Um, when I did so, I finally managed to access Wi-Fi. Now, remember, this was around noon or just, just afternoon, just after lunchtime. I'd got off a plane late afternoon, so I hadn't even been in Arizona 24 hours. I finally managed to access um, some Wi-Fi at the court as I was waiting and saw that I had received some emails, including one from my then husband saying, so glad you're back. I'll see you in court at 11 o'clock. This email was timestamped 10.03, I believe, or 10.07. So it was 53 minutes before this supposed court date at 11 a.m. And, of course, I'd been in a different family court trying to get my orders of protection made into something that I could use in Arizona. So I had missed a court hearing. 
I was shocked and horrified because I'd been told in England that no court, nothing could be filed in court until I was back on the ground in Arizona. So I would have time to find an attorney. And suddenly I find that the very morning after I return, I had been due in court and then missed a hearing. What was the impact of missing that hearing? The impact of the hearing, as I found out the next day, um, was that the judge had said, as I wasn't present, she was agreeing to everything my ex-husband asked for, which was basically sole custody of our children. So without a full hearing, a judge in Arizona, without conducting any fact-finding, recommended a change in custody? It was preliminary. I see. Okay. It wasn't the final. It was preliminary, so-called. But yeah, she said, um, definitely she was recommending, she, she was saying that the children should go straight to my husband. She quashed the order of protection that I had gone to such trouble to, to obtain. She quashed it almost immediately. Um, when, I, when I saw this email, I, I phoned the court in Arizona, the Supreme Court, and was told, yes, I'd missed a hearing. It had taken place without me. And the next hearing was the next day at 2 p.m., which I tend or not as I pleased. Um, obviously, I wanted to go and hear what was happening. So I then had less than 24 hours to find an attorney. I had very little money with me. Um, I had no legal contacts. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go. I didn't have a vehicle to drive around in. Um, I didn't get that for several days. So I had to quickly try and find an attorney, get to court the next day, um, where I heard that the judge had already ordered that the children should go straight to my husband, ex-husband as he is now. And I was actually um, on my own in court that day. I was without any representation. Um, I didn't understand what was happening. I had no idea no understanding of the legal process in, in any court in the world, actually, let alone in Arizona. And I stood up and the domestic violence advocates that I talked to said to me, you must ask for a um, best interest attorney or a guardian ad litem for your children, and you must show the judge your orders of protection. So that was all I was able to do was to say, I want to have a guardian ad litem. Um, she pointed out to me that in Arizona, it's called the best interest attorney. And I also said I have orders of protection. She appeared quite annoyed and irritated by this because she was willing to, for the children to go to my ex-husband immediately. And she looked at the orders of protection and turned to my ex-husband's attorney, because of course he had an attorney, and said, what do you want to do about this? Do you want to accept it now? And he just laughed and shrugged and said, sure, we'll accept it. And she said, what do you want to do? Do you want a hearing? The attorney said, yeah, let's have a hearing. The judge said, when do you want it? He said, as soon as possible. And she said, okay, why don't we just do it now? And I said, look, I've only just been off the plane less than 48 hours. I don't even have an attorney. This is just not right. And she said, fine, we'll have another hearing tomorrow at two o'clock. That gives you 24 hours to find an attorney. So what I hear is first... You weren't properly served, which in theory, obviously not in practice, but in theory is supposed to preclude any court and judge from proceeding with sanctioning you. 
Um, and- well, right there, um, Terry, I'm sorry. The judge did actually say to me very clearly, she pointed a finger to me and said, this is your fault. Your husband tried to give you the papers yesterday at the airport or the day before yesterday at the airport. You refused to accept them. This is all your fault. Right. So there's no proper service, which means there's no decision that can be made from that. But yet she sanctioned you for not having been properly served and then proceeded to retaliate against you and was ready to start a hearing without giving you the right to an attorney and finding an attorney. And so all of these different things that were violations of your civil rights were happening at once. Uh, well, I just yes, want to point. I just want to point this out to our listeners that, yes, yes, that they were happening, and secondly, that they can happen because the recourse that litigants have is to appeal the case, and lots of things can happen in a case that are violations of the law or violations of rules of evidence or procedure, um, and the only recourse right. is to appeal, which is one of the problems of our courts. Correct. So so then the next day, you're scheduled by the judge to have a hearing. Did you get an attorney at that point? Um, yes. Yeah, so the first hearing, I was not present because I didn't even know about it. The second hearing, I was unrepresented. I was pro se, so I represented myself. I was terrified. And the third hearing, I did have an attorney. I managed to find someone last minute who accepted a very small, uh, small for an attorney, payment to appear one afternoon to represent me in court for that hearing. So I met with him half an hour before the hearing in court. He quickly looked through my papers and went into court and stood up and spoke on my behalf. And what happened then? Was that when family therapy was ordered? Correct. Yes. In that hearing, the judge um, quashed the order of protection completely um, and said the children were to immediately be resident with their father. Of course, this was temporary. This is not the final decree and the final custody through the divorce. It was just the preliminary temporary um, orders, which she made clear. And so the children were to go straight to my husband. I was to have only supervised visitation with my children. But before that, I was to attend intensive family therapy um, for a total of six hours which was for myself, our children, and their father. And it was very expensive. It was $2,800 for six hours of therapy. And I was ordered to pay 50% of that. The therapy was to start in two days, and I had to pay in advance. So let's just recap before we go further. Sure. Your temporary order of protection was quashed, as you said, which yes. in effect is another violation of your rights because there was no hearing to actually determine what the outcome should be and no fact-finding, no evidence was presented and it was essentially uh, eliminated without any proper procedure. Was that right? Uh, correct. Well, the judge said that was the hearing. Okay, but you didn't get to present anything, I'm guessing. It sounded like... Yeah, no, I, I didn't really even understand what was happening at that point. I was, as you can imagine, it was incredibly traumatic to get off a plane and suddenly be told you're losing your children. And then you were ordered to have this family therapy, which I'm guessing the judge or did some attorney, the best interest attorney, decide who that family therapist should be? Who made the determination? 
Um, yes, I believe it was the guardian ad litem or best interest attorney who chose the therapy. I'm not 100% sure, but I believe it was her. Um, she had met with me and my children and met with their father. Um, and the judge was very reliant on her recommendations. So she recommended the intensive family therapy and specified which one. Okay. And in many states, there are rules that guide the selection process, which apparently it sounds like there was no selection process. One person made the determination and it, it didn't include your input. It definitely didn't include my input. No, I was just told what I had to do. I was in contact with my some of my domestic violence supporters, professionals in the United Kingdom, and they told me that forcing a victim survivor of rape and abuse to face their abuser in an intensive family therapy session would be absolutely not ever even thought of in England. It would not be done. It's it's absolutely the wrong thing to do. Well, it's actually not supposed to be done here as well. <laughs> so right. when oh, when you're when you're in an abusive relationship where there's power and control, the best practice yes. for practitioners in the U.S. is also to not involve the abuser. That's why mediation is not recommended for divorce because it wouldn't be a fair process. It would be coerced. Uh, And and so that in that case as well, there was, again, no adherence to best practices. Um, Correct. Yes. Okay. And so then how did the supervised visits go? What happened with the visits and with the family therapy? Well, for three weeks while the family therapy was taking place intermittently, I was only allowed to see my children during the family therapy sessions. So I had gone from being a stay-at-home mother their entire lives and basically for the last 16, 17 months, a single parent to not being allowed to see them at all, except in a therapy session. With their father uh, present. With their father, yes, yes, always with their father present, always. And um, after the three weeks of intensive family therapy, and remember this was only a total of six hours, that was the only time I got to see my children, six hours over three weeks. Um, after that was finished, I was permitted to have I think it was 10 hours a week of supervised visitation with my children, but it had to be supervised. Um, Now, the supervisor could be one of these centers that you can go to to pay to have supervised visitation. Or the judge also decided it could be any person that I and my ex-husband agreed on. So, for example, a neighbor. So fortunately, um, we lived in quite a tightly knit community and I knew a lot of people in the community and I was able to ask many people if they would help me. Um, They were quite horrified at what was happening and many of them did stand up and say, yes, we'd be happy to be your supervisor if he agrees. He did agree to many of them being acceptable supervisors. There was one neighbour who had actually been a childminder for our children um, very occasionally a few years previous to that. And he said to her, no, you can't be a supervisor. I don't approve of you. So that was strange. There was another neighbor who actually attended court with me one time and 
he stood up and looked at her and said, no, I don't know this person. And she's like, well, you came to my house. And he's like, no, I don't know you. So it was kind of arbitrary, but I managed to find about six neighbors who he agreed to approve of. So I was allowed to see my children at the homes of these neighbors only. Christmas, Thanksgiving, birthdays, everything, only at these neighbors' homes. And luckily, these wonderful people did open their homes and their hearts to us and allowed us to be together in their homes. And how long did this last? This was from the end of November, December, January, February, March. It was about six months until April or May when the final decree came. A final decree, you mean decision from the court. Was there a trial? Um, yes, there was a, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not always familiar with the exact terminology that's, that's correct to use for court cases and so on, but there were more times that I had to be in court in, um, March, I believe it was. And, um, there was another serious couple of hearings and then the judge issued a judgment or a decree, a, a decision. I'm not sure what the correct term is. Um, and that meant that I was finally divorced from my husband and the final custody decisions were given in that document. It's 26 pages long. <laughs> so let me just clarify. The process did or did not include both sides presenting evidence and calling witnesses, which would be a trial? Or was it just the judge asking for selective information without a trial? Yeah, no, I'm sorry. There was a trial. Um, I wasn't clear on that. There was a trial. And um, it was in February and March 2015. And I believe there were some witnesses. One was the police officer who had been at the airport when I landed and refused to accept paperwork. And um, I don't think there were any other real witnesses. So you and your husband didn't testify? Your ex-husband didn't testify? Well, he did and I did. Yes, that's correct. We did as well. But there were no other witnesses. So there were three witnesses altogether? Yes. And nobody else was called, like friends, family, people who were the volunteers for the supervised visits, nobody else? No, no, no. I had affidavits from about 25 or 30 people, including all these um, neighbors and friends who were the supervisors for the visits. But um, obviously we gave a copy of all that over. My attorney gave a copy of that to the judge, but she made it clear that she wasn't interested. Usually affidavits, my understanding is, aren't accepted as evidence because it's considered hearsay. So you still need the individual to come to attest to what they say in the affidavit. Right. And I had, I believe, 12 people come with me to court and sit there and they would have, any of them would have been happy to testify. So your attorney didn't call them either as witnesses? No, that's a diff- difficult um area because uh, he actually didn't do any of the things that he promised me in the beginning that he would do. Okay. So there was also attorney, I hate to say this word, but malpractice. There was some... um, Exactly. Okay. And I, I had another attorney in Arizona look over my case and he actually said to me, don't forget, um, there is no statute of limitations on filing for malpractice. Uh Uh-huh. So the final ruling came out in April. There was a full trial with three witnesses and the decision granted custody to your ex-husband. And what was the amount of time that was granted um, and what was the allocation of decision-making? 
Right. Well, we actually have technically joint custody of our children and joint legal decision making. Um, joint custody with the caveat that my children are to reside with their father in Arizona. Joint legal decision making with the caveat that if we cannot agree, the father gets to make the final decision. That doesn't sound like joint to me. It sounds like he gets to make the final decision. Well, that's what he's actually said to me in an email. He said, I'm not going to discuss this. I'm just going to make the decisions. Did the court acknowledge that there was domestic violence in the ruling? No, they didn't acknowledge domestic violence. They acknowledged that um, my ex-husband showed signs of anger and of being unable to control his anger against me and that I was basically uh, playing the victim the whole time is what they said. Because mm-hmm. in some states, if there are guidelines for determining custody and if there is domestic violence acknowledged or even in some cases alleged, they're not allowed to rule for joint custody. It has to be sole custody. So, Right. Yeah. So then what happened practically as a result of the ruling? What were the practical implications of how much time you ended up having with your children? Well, the final ruling came through towards the end of April 2015. And um, as I said, my children have to reside with my ex-husband. There were a lot of costs involved, as well as my own legal costs. I was ordered to pay 50% of his legal costs. Of course, I'd gotten for the cheapest attorney I could find, and he had a very expensive one. I also had to pay 50% of his debt because Arizona is a community property state. And um, I was also told that I wouldn't get alimony because the judge deemed me to be manipulative. So she said she wasn't going to give me any alimony. I also have to pay child support, although I earn around $1,000 a month and still earn around $1,000 a month. I still get um, what's what you would call welfare. I get help from the state in England and have done for the last three or four years. So although my earnings are around $1,000 a month, I was told to pay over £300 a month in child support, which obviously I've been unable to do. Um, I had to return to England. I couldn't afford to stay in the US. The ruling said that I was only allowed to see them in the summer for eight weeks, but that eight weeks is broken as their father gets to see them for 24 hours every seven days. Originally, I was awarded eight solid weeks, but he immediately filed a motion saying it was unfair on him as a father to not see his children for eight weeks. And the judge agreed and said, of course, he should have 24 hours every seven days. On the other hand, you don't get to see them other than the eight weeks in the summer. So during the school year, he has that uninterrupted, but the judge didn't see a problem with that. Exactly. And in fact, as you know, Terry, I now haven't seen my children at all for over three years. Um, The rest of the ruling was that I could see them for, I believe, eight days over the Christmas period and two weeks for the spring holiday period, spring vacation period. Um, But I was to see them in Arizona or in England. And the judge specifically put in her um, decision that my husband had said in court that he would bring the children to England if I wanted. And um, she said that I would have to pay a $20,000 
bail or something like that, uh, like a deposit, so that to make sure I would return my children. So basically, a cost of twenty thousand dollars for my two children, um, which I don't have, and um, share travel costs and so on. The to cut a long story short. I can't afford to go back to Arizona. It's around $1,000 a ticket. That's a month's earnings for me. If I did go back to Arizona, I'd have to find accommodation, find a vehicle, take care of my children, feed them and entertain them for the period that I was with them as it's only during school vacation period. I wouldn't be able to work during that period, obviously. I'd have to find health care, health insurance for myself. I've asked their father every vacation, summer, Christmas and spring, to please allow them to come and see me in England where I have a home to live in so there would be no additional accommodation costs. I have a vehicle. I have so many family members and friends who would be happy to put us up so we could actually have kind of a vacation just seeing different people. Um, it would be much easier to be able to take care of my children here uh, but he has refused, and the last time he refused was oh, 18 months to two years ago, and since then he's actually not responded to any of my emails. Do you have any contact with your kids directly through phone or email? How old are they now? My daughter is now 11, and my son is now 13. And as I said, I haven't seen them for over three years. My son stopped talking to me about two years ago, um, I can imagine he's hurt, he's upset, he doesn't understand what's happening. All he knows is that his mother is gone. And I have no idea what stories his father is telling him. My daughter has maintained contact with me consistently. Um, she is now of an age where she's been given her own cell phone. And the minute she got WhatsApp, she sent me a message and said, Mom, I've got WhatsApp. Do you know what that is? Can you use it? So, yes, we're now on WhatsApp together. I've been able to put in contact with her grandparents on WhatsApp, um, with friends of hers from her school days in England. She's made a little group with them, with her uncle and um, aunt in England. So, yes, I do have contact in that way with my daughter. My son... I don't directly have contact with him. I've written, I write to him emails. I send him messages all the time. I send gifts. Um, he is still in contact with some friends from years ago, let's say, that I have helped to facilitate that contact. And sometimes on Skype, when it's things like Christmas or my nephew, their cousin's birthday, for example, he was five in August, I was able to Skype with my daughter and then say to her, would your brother like to come and say happy birthday? And he does come and join in. He's happy to talk to his grandparents very nicely. He talks to his cousin. He talks to his uncle and aunt. He just doesn't want to talk to me. Do you happen to know from your daughter, perhaps, if either of your children are in therapy? They're not in therapy. They were ordered to go to ther into therapy by the court. That was part of the, um, the final uh, ruling. And they were taken to see a therapist two or three times by their father. He sat in on every session with them. And he then agreed with the therapist that they're perfectly happy and well-adjusted children in no need of therapy. They also um, have a school counsellor, obviously. While I was still in Arizona, I made every effort to be involved in their school life and to volunteer at school and to help out. And um, I met with the school counsellor. I asked her 
without giving her details, I asked her to spend time with my children and to talk to them. She did. The first time she did, um, my daughter went home and told her father what had happened in school, that she'd met the counsellor. He immediately went to school and ordered the school not to allow the counsellor to speak to my children. So my daughter at that point was in floods of tears. She enjoyed having a contact that she could speak to. And she realized, she said to me, mum, I should never have told dad that I spoke to the counsellor. And what can you say? So they have no one to talk to. What legal options do you have if you wanted to enforce your time with your children? Is the only option that you would have to come back to the U.S. and file something in Arizona, I'm assuming? Uh, I believe there are two things that I could do, Terry. Um, I could come back to Arizona and file something in court, of course, contempt of court, because all the orders that the judge gave have basically been broken. Um, I would probably be at risk of being imprisoned because I have not paid child support for over three years. And as you know, that is a jailable offence. So... I'm, I don't dare return to Arizona. Um, I could file, I believe I could file from here. I believe I don't have to be in the court to file. Or I could um, retain an attorney perhaps if I had any money and get the attorney to file for me, I think. Um, I could also use the Hague Convention myself now to enforce my time with my children that I actually have contact with my children. The thing is, I'm... Now, unfortunately, too fearful of doing any of this because of how it could backfire. My children are with my husband, their ex-husband. They have been with him and only with him for over three years. He is obviously permitting them to maintain this little bit of contact. He could very easily cut it off. If he were to move to another state... I would have no contact at all. He could remove their phones, cut off internet access. I would suddenly have no contact. I would have no way of knowing where they were, um, no way of finding them again. So that's a fear that I have. If I rock the boat, that's what he could do. And of course, Terry, (laughs) the other terrible side of it is, um, as we all know, very often there are these horrible, horrible incidents where fathers kill the children and very often the mother as well and no mother wants to take that risk I believe I'm aware of what my ex-husband is capable of and I'm not prepared to take that risk. Anita it sounds like your situation is really a catch-22 where you can't really see your children because of the threat of incarceration And yet, at the same time, you're concerned about the safety of your children. What would happen if you were to ask for more? And as you said, rock the boat. So it's really a form of torture, I hear. It is. And it's it's never ending. Unfortunately, it's a torture that is perpetuated and supported by the courts in many, many um, cases. What would you say to other survivors who are just as conflicted and just as confused and unable to remedy their situation? Is there anything that, any kind of advice that you can offer them? Yes, I hope. I hope so, Terry. Um, For me, really, the most important thing and my kind of mantra, if you like now, is live your best life. There are things you cannot change. There are risks you cannot take. 
don't give up. Keep fighting to live the best life you can now. Be as happy as you can be. I know it seems impossible, but try to be happy. That is really the best thing you can do so that one day you can show your children, this is what I have done with my life. This is what I have achieved. This is what I have built. I have missed you. You have been lacking in my life and now you're here. And this is what I can show you I have done despite everything that's been thrown at me. So live your best life. So what do you think is the best thing you can do to help your children now? I try to maintain as much contact as I can with them to let them know that I love them, that I'm here anytime, that their family is still in contact with them and still loves them and wants to support them, that they still have friends here. So I facilitate all contact with friends as well. All I can do is wait. Is there anything you would like to say to your children? I want them to know that I love them, that I miss them every day, that we'll never get this time back, but that I believe if we are patient and strong, we will be together again one day. And how are you doing, Anita? What are you doing to keep yourself strong? It's been very difficult, Terry. I've gone through some very, very hard times. I've been fortunate that back in the United Kingdom, we have... Um, healthcare in this country, which is free at the point of service, the National Health Service. I have had counselling. I have great medical care in this country, and I don't have to worry about the costs of it um, because I'm on a very low income anyway, but it doesn't matter. It's all free at the point of service. So I have that support. I have counsellors. There are great domestic violence charities and organisations which also support me. Uh, I also have a lot of family and wonderful friends who support me who are well aware of the entire situation. And my um, actions have been, first of all, I helped to found a charity a couple of years ago to help stuck parents. A stuck parent is a parent who is not allowed to return home to their home country with their child because people are not aware of how the Hague Convention works. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. It doesn't matter whether you're married or not. Basically, if one child is taken from one country to another, it can be returned to the first country very quickly and people are not aware of that. They think they're just going home with their child and it's not always possible. So I helped to found a charity with the person who'd originally started the group. So the charity is called Global Arc. And if anyone's interested in finding out about the Hague Convention, how it can affect parents, I would recommend looking at the website. That's global and then arc a rrk.org and I resigned from that charity in December 2017 um, and I'm now pursuing an MA, a Masters in Woman and Child Abuse and that is helping me to understand patterns of abuse, the prevalence of abuse, how, system sorry, how systemic it is in our society. I've learned a lot more about Evan Stark's work. He's been a wonderful support to me and um, I'm hoping that through my studies and my dissertation, I will be able to help a lot more parents. I support a lot of parents informally as well. Is your eventual goal to be a therapist or to continue to work in advocacy? Uh, no, I don't want to be a therapist. I don't think I'm a good person for that because I obviously have far too many triggers. So working directly with people who are going through or experiencing abuse, for example, would not 
be something that I think I would be the right person for. I would like to work in advocacy and policy. I'd like to help in um, uh, policy, um, writing policies and working out the policies to help governments and organizations. And what have you learned from your studies so far that has shifted how you view looking back on your own experience? I think the two main things that I've learned that have helped me personally so far are that the shame is always on the victim and we need to shift that in our society and it's the perpetrator that needs to bear the shame of abuse, not the victim. So we need to be able to speak out about it. It's very much a gendered crime. It's the large majority of people who suffer domestic violence, domestic abuse, sexual assault are women. We need to be quite clear about that. We need to educate our sons and daughters so that they understand what a healthy relationship is, what abuse is, and how to not be abusive and not to accept abuse. Is there anything in closing that you would like to share with friends and family, or rather not necessarily your own, but is there anything you would like to share to listeners, friends and family about how they could better be upstanders and supportive of the people in their lives who are going through abusive relationships and trying to stay away and heal from that? Um, Yes, I think if you see any signs of abuse or you feel there might be a situation that could possibly be abusive, don't be afraid to speak about it and don't be concerned if the person says no everything's fine because of course we want to try and brush it under the carpet we might be afraid to speak up because of um whatever punishment we might receive for that so we just need to know that there is support that people are there that people will believe us when we talk about it that there is help that people can help us to make plans for the future um i think that's all very important Financially, of course, um, this is very difficult for almost all victim survivors. Getting together money for attorneys in the US is extremely difficult. It's also very difficult in the United Kingdom now. And very often what happens is that the perpetrator may be a man in a successful job who has money, who has a great attorney, while the victim survivor may have to represent herself in court, which is a very difficult situation. So I think pressing for more for domestic abuse, domestic violence agencies to be able to provide legal support and advocacy for victims is also very important. Anita Guerra, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you, Terry. Thank you for allowing me to put my story out there. I hope it will help someone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. Can Do It helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. Can Do It. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.